Well, good morning and welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson. At Hudson, we believe that global security, prosperity, and freedom requires strong, engaged, and strategic American leadership at the heart of a vigorous network of allies. And for now more than half a century, we have analyzed both Soviet, Soviet Russian and Russian nuclear rhetoric and weapons programs from the days of the Cold War, when our founder, Herman Kahn, encouraged thinking about the unthinkable, civil defense, and analysis of possible ladders of escalation to reduce the possibility of nuclear war, to pioneering work we did uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s on ballistic missile defense, to research more recently on what has been termed the second nuclear age. Our panel this morning, and I'm delighted that we have such a large crowd for a uh, 9 a.m. panel on a uh, somewhat gloomy-looking weather, morning weather-wise. Uh, our panel today looks at the disturbing new nuclear rhetoric and actions coming out of Moscow these days. As all of us know, uh, in, in late August, Vladimir Putin offered a not-so-veiled nuclear threat against Ukraine, followed by numerous incidents in which Russian strategic bombers flew into both American and Canadian air defense space in recent weeks. And these actions and rhetoric uh, occurred against the backdrop of an unprecedented announcement by Putin at a uh, recent meeting of the Russian Duma in Ukraine and Crimea, at which uh, the uh, authorization of the basing of nuclear systems in Crimea th was, was permitted, including uh, long-range air launch cruise missiles, Russian short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, and this occurred following an announcement in April that Russia might place tactical nuclear weapons in Crimea. Not only, obviously, would these actions violate Ukrainian sovereignty, but uh, as a number of leading figures in Congress, Chairman Buck McKeon of the House Armed Services Committee uh, and subcommittee chairs Mike Rogers and Michael Turner wrote in a letter to the president, and here I paraphrase, they make a mockery of nonproliferation goals and give Russia an enhanced strategic advantage. To quote from this uh, important letters from this, uh, the members, these members of Congress, locating wep nuclear weapons on the sovereign territory of another state without its permission is a devious and cynical action that further undermines Russian credibility in terms of the Budapest Memorandum that the Russian Federation signed in 1994. This Russian action would be ironic if it, were not so, if it was not so threatening to global nonproliferation goals. It further positions Russian nuclear weapons closer to the heart of NATO, and it allows Russia to gain a military advantage from its seizure of Crimea, allowing Russia to profit from its actions. If Russia thinks it can gain advantages from such actions, it will continue them. It is also a clear and perhaps irrevocable tearing of the peaceful and stable security environment that made the founding act on mutual relations, cooperation, and security between NATO and the Russian Federation of 1997, also known as the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And Chairman McKeon and subcommittee chairs Rogers and Turner uh, wrote to the president expressing severe disappointment in the outcome of the uh, NATO uh, summit at Wales for failing to take vigorous action with regard to Putin's action and Putin's rhetoric. This morning, our question is, what do we make of, the, of uh, Putin's uh, escalated rhetoric and uh, the action that he's taking coming at a time when Russia is clearly uh, intent on nuclear modernization? Is this a new Russian foreign policy? What do these actions imply about the state of the American deterrent and more broadly about the fate of the so-called nuclear zero movement? 
to analyze these critical questions and, and a number of others. We have an ex a remarkable panel this morning of first-rate experts, each of whom will speak for between 10 to 15 minutes before we open it up to questions. Let me introduce all three, and then we will let each of them uh, speak in turn. The first speaker is Andre Piankowski. Andre is a visiting fellow here at Hudson, but he is much more than that. Andre is a, almost a figure out of Russian literature. He's one of Russia's last and leading pro-Western intellectuals, a brilliant mathematician, a graduate of Moscow State who's published over 100 articles on applied mathematics. But his attention moved from math to uh, political science and politics uh, some time ago uh, as he became one of uh, Russia's most outspoken political commentators, a fearless critic of Vladimir Putin, someone who once faced criminal charges in his own home country for more than two years, charges of extremism, and uh, Andre was eventually acquitted, but he certainly has had to fear for his life and still does. We are deeply honored to have him back from Moscow to, to address us today. Now, Andre, when he came, came, as he came armed with props, and these are the this is the latest clothing out of Moscow, and uh, there, this is part of a campaign that uh, is going on uh, in which Russian citizens are being asked to trade in their English language T-shirts for Russian language shirts, and I'll. I'll I, w I will loosely translate. Uh, this says, "Sanctions uh, don't make uh, don't make a mockery of my iskander," meaning that uh, just be beware of uh, what you're doing because you could uh, be elevating the danger of of uh, serious action by uh, through sanctions. Yeah, meaning nuclear war exactly. And this one is uh, this one. Uh, you know, uh, uh, again, just makes fun of uh, sanctions uh, as well. And you can see the kind of you see what you see what is you see the weapons on these T-shirts. You see the language, and you see the fact that these are being distributed to. Uh, to uh, yeah, this is an ICBM, as Hudson trustee Kurt Windsor points out. So, uh, these these T-shirts will become part of the official Hudson Institute uh, clothing uh, weapons uh, weapons clothing uh, collection. For uh, further inspection after the panel, but it's a sign of uh, just how serious uh, things are getting in Moscow in this regard, and just how serious the rhetoric is. Our second speaker is going to be William Schneider. Bill Schneider is a senior fellow here at Hudson. He has deep roots here at Hudson, having arrived on staff as a newly minted PhD in economics the week that the Soviet Union marched into uh, Prague in 1968. He worked closely with Herman Kahn on nuclear issues before Bill began an illustrious career in government as a uh, top Senate aide, as an OMB defense official in the Reagan administration, as former undersecretary of state in the Reagan administration, and as chair of the Defense Science Board under uh, President uh, George W. Bush. Bill Schneider is one of our nation's leading experts on nuclear issues, and he is currently undertaking a major new pro project here at Hudson on the second nuclear age. Our last speaker is Roland Freudenstein. Roland is deputy director and head of research at the Wilfred Martin Center for European Studies in Brussels, which is a proud partner of Hudson Institute. Roland has written widely on European defense and security issues, as well as alliance questions in a long and distinguished career at the uh, German Council on Foreign Relations, the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, and as a member of the Foreign and Security 
planning staff at the European Union. So we're delighted to have these three noted experts with us this morning, and I now have the pleasure to turn the microphone over to Andre. After uh, our three panelists speak, we'll open it up for uh, questions uh, from the audience. So thank you very much for being here, and I want to thank our panelists. Looking forward to hearing their remarks. Uh, thank you, Ken. Any military strategy, including uh, nuclear strategy, is uh, generated by the political strategy of the state, by the set of ambitions, objectives, uh, uh, complexes, values of its leadership. So before addressing uh, directly the subject of our panel, I'm obliged to devote some time uh, to this um, uh, political political motivation of uh, Russian leadership behavior. Uh, all we remember uh, the famous uh, Churchill saying that uh, Russia is a riddle wrapped uh, in a mystery inside an enigma. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, in our current situation, we have key to this uh, riddle mystery enigma Russian foreign policy is 100% conducted uh, by one person, uh, Vladimir Putin. So key to the Russian foreign policy and its strategy, its uh, set of uh, motivation and interest on this uh, particular person. Uh, the highest uh, priority, fundamental priority for Putin is just to stay in power forever. He watched what happened to Mubarak and especially what, what happened to Gaddafi when they lost uh, his power, and he determined uh, never to leave the Kremlin. Until recently, until this Ukrainian crisis, uh, Putin regime was uh, authoritarian uh, kleptocracy without much ideological pretensions. On foreign agenda, it just reacted uh, to what uh, he perceived as a threat uh, for itself. And uh, certainly the European aspiration of Ukraine, the European vector of uh, policy, were perceived by, as an existential threat by Putin's Russia because success of Ukraine on this way would present an uh, undesirable example uh, for uh, for Russian society. That's why first he tried to bully and to bribe uh, Yanukovych to make him uh, refuse of uh, association agreement with the European Union. And then after Yanukovych kleptocracy very similar to Putin's were overthrown, uh, he was determined uh, uh, to either submit Ukraine completely to his view or to dismantle it. And the first uh, act on this uh, agenda was annexation uh, of Crimea. Uh, the act by which uh, uh, Russia, Putin's Russia um, broke a dozen of international agreements uh, uh, signed by our state. I think that Putin's Crimean speech, which he delivered, uh, which he delivered in Kremlin on occasion of formal 
joining uh, Russian Federation by Crimea and Sevastopol was a political event even more important than annexation of uh, uh, Crimea itself. Uh, the task for Putin during this uh, speech was to legitimize, uh, to justify, or even to glorify the act uh, of annexation. But he did much more. He did fulfill uh, even more important uh, mission for him. He created, he designed a new, a new ideology of so-called Ruski Mir, uh, Russian world. No dictatorship can be based only on violence and intimidation. Uh, prolonged dictatorship, they need some kind of ideology or mythology which would, be, which would appeal to considerable part of uh, population for considerable span of time, like Hitler ideology of uh, uh, superiority of German race or Stalin ideology uh, of communism. Many commentators of his speech, including myself, immediately note that uh, Putin Crimean speech was a remake of German Chancellor Hitler's Sudetian speech we had delivered on the occasion of annexation of Sudet. All main uh, uh, concept and even terminology of Nazi political foreign policy propaganda were borrowed in this speech. First of all, this united nation. He said, informed us that we Russian are this united nation. For the first time, this term was used uh, on such uh, uh, high level. Then he talked about, uh, uh, he um, uh, justified Crimean uh, accessions, gathering of historical Russian land. Then what's even funny, he coined a new term for his opponent, national predatory, national traitors. It's uh, absolutely new term. For, uh, it's, there was no such term in Soviet or Russian political uh, vocabulary. On Soviet's uh, uh, opponents were uh, castigators, uh, enemies of people. And national, national traitors, national predatory, was purely Nazi uh, terminology. And uh, the most important uh, concept, it was a concept of Ruski Mir, Russian world. Putin claimed his right and even uh, sacred duty to protect not, citizens, not Russian citizens, but ethnic Russians or uh, Russian language speakers all over, all over uh, the world. And... Uh, to demonstrate that uh, Crimea is only first step for promoting this Ruski Mir uh, idea agenda, he immediately indicated uh, another uh, uh, another stage, and he coined one more new new term, Novorossiya. By Novorossiya. He, he named uh, 8,000 uh, in 8,000 
Ukrainian regions which, to his opinion, were unjustly handed over to Ukraine after after Bolshevik uh, uh, revolution. So now he created a long-term uh, ideological system by which uh, he could uh, justify uh, his uh, his uh, uh, rule uh, forever because it's very long-term uh, program. It's much more comfortable. Uh, any dictator, as I already know, needs uh, uh, such uh, mythology. It's much more comfortable to him to say, I'm here in Kremlin to promote great Russia idea than uh, to say, I'm here in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Kremlin just to make... Uh, tens of billions of dollars for myself and my, uh, my crony. And these were not uh, just simple words. This hybrid war against Ukraine, which uh, began, uh, I think, even not from uh, uh, intrusion uh, of polite green men to Crimea, but uh, uh, from his uh, uh, campaign, from his pressure on Yanukovych government uh, a year ago, uh, uh, to reject uh, European change, this war is going on. And it's going on now with its ups uh, and downs. And uh, as I already, already mentioned, uh, the, uh, the main objective here to control Kyiv, to control Ukrainian government, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine as a whole. He doesn't need annexation of this uh, to uh, to region Donetsk and Lugansk. By the way, now he is the uh, most ardent supporter of territorial integrity of Ukraine, uh, besides Krim, of course. He needs to have this uh, cancer tumor inside Ukraine territory to spread uh, uh, instability and chaos uh, from it. But Kremlin, Kremlin propaganda offices... Uh, uh, present this war, present these events not as war of Russia with Ukraine. Uh, this Kremlin-speaking uh, heads uh, tell us uh, every day uh, on TV that it's much more. It's a war between Russia and the United States of America. And this Ukraine is just terrain on which uh, this uh, war uh, is uh, developing. And even uh, more philosophically, is a war between uh, uh, Ruskimir, Russian war, and Anglo-Saxonian Anglo war. And Putin explained us also that we Russians, we have a unique uh, genetic, uh, genetic code, superior to genetic code of Anglo-Saxonian world, because Anglo-Saxons, they are mercantiles, they are... Uh, thinking about their own enrichment, and uh, due to our Russian, specific Russian uh, new, uh, genetic code, we possess much higher spirituality. And, uh, uh, for example, uh, one of the uh, Kremlin guy, I call him, uh, I call him uh, Molotov Ribbentrop uh, grandson. It's uh, Mr. Nikonov, uh, grandson of Mr. Molotov. He even made historical um, 
historical discovery, he said that we Russians are Aryan tribe which descended uh, from Herpesian mountain and spread all over the world until the Fort Ross in California. And uh, corresponding element of all this uh, propaganda campaign is a permanent reference uh, to nuclear to nuclear weapon. You saw this uh, T-shirt, every uh, statement of Putin, Shoigu, or, or Rogozin include phrase, don't forget that we're nuclear power. There was a scandalous performance uh, uh, and, uh, and the meeting of top Russian officials in August uh, in Sochi when Vice Speaker of Duma, Mr. Zhirinovsky, uh, threatened to annihilate completely both Republic uh, and Poland. And Mr. Putin uh, was present there and summing up uh, uh, the panel discussion, he very approvingly notes that uh, Vladimir Wolfovich's always was very vivid and flamboyant, but maybe not all his uh, uh, words reflects uh, exactly the policy of, uh, of current government. Uh, then uh, the anchor of main of main uh, TV uh, weekly program, Mr. Kisilov, uh, uh, boasted that we can reduce uh, United States uh, uh, to uh, radioactive patients. What does all this rhetoric uh, means? I think that Putin uh, is rational and uh, enough and uh, informed enough to understand that, yes, we can. We can reduce the uh, United States to radioactive issues, but the cost of this pleasure will be to reduce ourselves to the same, uh, to the same state. The doctrine of mutual assured destruction is still valid, and it uh, prevents us, uh, uh, prevents world from full-scale war. But uh, uh, Ken already mentioned the name of a classic of nuclear strategy, one of the founders of our institute, uh, Dr. Herman Ken, and in, in his classical in his classical books on thermonuclear war and uh, uh, thinking about unthinkable, uh, he uh, taught us that the much more different scenario of uh, limited nuclear war and adventurous uh, nuclear power can try to reach uh, some uh, political uh, political uh, objective. Uh, uh, by, the, uh, by initiating uh, uh, limited uh, nuclear war. And uh, uh, let's try, uh, like uh, uh, Herman Kahn, uh, to think a, a bit about unthinkable. Let's imagine uh, that uh, someday uh, in uh, Estonian city Narva, with predominantly Russian uh, population, uh, this uh, Putin's polite uh, green man appear, conduct a referendum, and uh, claim that, well, this part of territory is historically uh, belongs uh, uh, to Russian, uh, to Russian board. Well, a year ago, annexation of uh, Krim was uh, unthinkable, so we should uh, uh, think about uh, uh, this scenario. Estonian government... Uh, uh, referring to Article 5 of uh, uh, NATO agreement asks uh, NATO countries uh, to help. And uh, if uh, 
NATO country help the joint convention might uh, much uh, much stronger than uh, Russian uh, army. But at that moment, uh, Putin publicly say uh, or and privately talk uh, to his uh, uh, partners in Europe. Okay, we realize that uh, more powerful conventional force uh, is ready to confront us uh, in our uh, in our agenda of uh, Russian votes, and we warn you that uh, we are ready to use uh, nuclear weapon if uh, if uh, these NATO conventional forces try to push us out uh, uh, from uh, Estonia. What will be the reaction of Western uh, of Western uh, politician. It's very difficult uh, to predict. I think uh, that uh, uh, a vast majority of people, both in Europe and uh, in the United States, would say, would say, we are not ready to die for Narva, like uh, in certain European, European uh, repeated, we are not ready to die for Danzig. So uh, this situation will create uh, an unthinkable choice for uh, for West, either accumulating capitulation, which would mean uh, refusal to enter Estonia, would mean end of NATO, end of Western allies, end of the role of the United States as guarantor of Western security. But providing uh, its help, which would mean war with thermonuclear uh, power. The only way to tackle this problem is to avoid it. And it's, it's the only way, it's my last point, the only way to avoid uh, this problem is to inflict defeat to this crazy idea of uh, Roskimir just now and here in Ukraine. Purely by economic and political uh, instruments. The uh, West has all opportunity uh, to do it and to prevent itself from facing uh, this choice between uh, capitulation and nuclear bomb. Thank you. Thank you, Andre, for those <laughs> characteristically ominous yet very insightful comments. I have to say that every time I think that uh, you're getting more ominous, you, you are, unfortunately, facts have proven you correct uh, for the past uh, the last 10 years since I've, uh, more than the past 10 years since I've followed your writings uh, closely. So thank you for that, uh, for that uh, brilliant analysis. Let's, let's turn it over to, uh, to Bill Schneider. Um, thanks, Kenan. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm uh, particularly uh, reassured by the uh, uh, size of the audience. Uh, five years ago, it would have been difficult to get an audience the third, the third the size we have now, and it would have been entirely composed of geezers. So it's, uh, it is uh, uh, rewarding indeed. I'm, I'm going to uh, just address three subjects that are uh, derived from the points that Andre has just made about uh, uh, the implications of the uh, increased uh, aggressiveness of Russian foreign policy with respect to uh, nuclear deterrence, uh, arms control, and uh, finally to the uh, uh, policy aspiration of uh, nuclear abol abolition or uh, nuclear zero. Uh, the the uh, uh, increasing in, uh, 
uh, congruence of Russian foreign policy and the manipulation of nuclear threats is, is a uh, serious challenge to the uh, uh, post-war uh, post uh, um, order that tr tried to stabilize the um, uh, use of uh, and threat of use of nuclear weapons through the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty of 1968. The aim was to create a, a new set of norms uh, that would uh, 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 discourage or prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons, but also to uh, assure that the five countries that uh, 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 was, were grandfathered in as uh, nuclear weapon states because they had uh, tested nuclear weapons before the treaty came into force would also not use their uh, nuclear advantage to threaten non-nuclear states. But um, uh, a dimension of uh, Russian uh, foreign policy in the past, uh, certainly in the past year, has much more aggressively coupled its nuclear uh, power to uh, uh, its uh, th threatening of uh, uh, states in the region. And uh, th this, in turn, couples directly to uh, the uh, uh, core of uh, U.S. Uh, and indeed global uh, non-proliferation policy, which is the credibility of the extended deterrent. Uh, because uh, the uh, uh, Russians have uh, continued to integrate uh, the, the threat of nuclear weapons in, into their foreign policy, it becomes increasingly important to countries that have uh, abstained from the development of nuclear weapons to be confident that the U.S. nuclear umbrella will extend to uh, uh, to deter the th future threat or use of nuclear weapons by nuclear states, and in particular, Russia. The uh, rapid sequence with which the Russians have uh, not only um, uh, undertaken these threats but have uh, coupled it with action is, is already having a destructive impact on the uh, global norms created by the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Three countries in, in Europe have, have already discussed uh, the possibility of acquiring nuclear weapons, uh, Poland, uh, Turkey, and Ukraine. And uh, it, this, is, this process is only beginning as the uh, 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 NPT is, is becomes, uh, uh, becomes at risk as a consequence of, of uh, these developments. The um, second set of implications that uh, derive from the increasing uh, aggressiveness of, of Russian foreign policy, particularly as it deals with weapons of mass destruction, is on the network of uh, arms control agreements that have been put in place since the uh, 1960s. I've, I've already mentioned the Nuclear Non-Proliferation uh, non Treaty, but uh, uh, perhaps the most um, uh, troublesome dimension of, of this, uh, certainly that affects the United States, is the impact of uh, 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 Russian aggressiveness on its, uh, uh, on its nuclear modernization. It has uh, undertaken a, a program of nuclear modernization that uh, the uh, Russian leadership intends to put in place by uh, the year 2020. This uh, nuclear modernization involves uh, n not only uh, building new missiles, but uh, a whole new uh, generation of uh, advanced nuclear weapons that, that are much smaller uh, and lighter. And as a consequence, they are taking this uh, great increase in the payload capacity or throw weight of its ballistic missile force and fractionating that uh, payload among a much larger number of uh, uh, reentry vehicles. 
or uh, the uh, warheads that are contained on the missiles. This uh, eye-watering increase in the scale of the threat posed uh, to the U.S. Uh, completely undermines the, under, uh, the uh, aims of the uh, New START agreement, which were intended to be a first step on the uh, road to uh, 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 nuclear abolition. Uh, uh, as I said, the, when, the, when this agreement is, uh, t- term is ended in 2021, uh, the U.S. will be much worse off in, in terms of the strategic balance and, indeed, the coupling of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, strategic nuclear power uh, to the extended deterrent, which poses the kind of problems I, I uh, mentioned at the outset. But uh, the, uh, while the New START uh, treaty is the one that has the most immediate impact on the, on the U.S., the uh, uh, the Russian behavior has also produced problems for the credibility of two of the other uh, major arms control agreements, the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement of uh, uh, 1987. Uh, the the uh, Russians have uh, both tested a, a, a cruise missile of uh, uh, intermediate range that's supposed to be banned by the treaty. They've just brushed off uh, uh, U.S. Uh, concerns. The Department of State sent its uh, senior negotiator to uh, to Moscow on uh, September 11th, and and her complaints were uh, dismissed. Uh, uh, no less troublesome is the uh, uh, recent test of a, a Russian ICBM that had a single warhead in it. The the Russians then put three warheads on it. And uh, that, uh, an additional weight, reduced the, the range of the uh, system so that it became an intermediate-range nuclear missile, uh, again, supposed to be banned by the, by the uh, 1987 ag- agreement. But uh, again, the, the, the Russians have shown no interest in, in uh, uh, becoming uh, compliant with the regime. Uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, signed in, uh, and uh, entered into force in the 1990s, uh, was supposed to uh, uh, bring an end to uh, uh, chemical weapons. And uh, we, of course, have seen in uh, Syria that the, uh, uh, with, with uh, uh, Russian uh, diplomatic cooperation, had agreed to get rid of all of its uh, uh, chemical weapons. But uh, we've... Uh, we got a, a bait-and-switch deal out of it where they uh, provided some uh, precursor chemicals but have refused uh, in- inspections on uh, either their facilities for manufacturing uh, the, uh, uh, the chemical agents or uh, its, uh, uh, it, its uh, residual stocks. The Russians have not chosen to, to cooperate further on this matter, and as a consequence, uh, Syria has now initiated the use of uh, toxic industrial chemicals that were favored during World War I, the use of uh, chlorine as a uh, chemical agent, and have uh, used it with tactical success in its effort to suppress, suppress the, uh, uh, the uh, revolt in, in Syria. Well, the, uh, again, the problems created for how do you deter use when we're unable to uh, deal with this uh, uh, situation in Syria. Other countries will uh, almost certainly find this uh, useful uh, a way of, of dealing with, uh, 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 with uh, rebellious uh, individuals and uh, uh, the use of toxic industrial chemicals that are uh, widely accessed, like uh, chlorine. It's, it's the, uh, 
uh, one of the most widely used industrial chemicals and is, is um, uh, essential for water purification. So it's not like the, that uh, uh, it, the, the, the chemical can be constructively banned, uh, even though its use is banned uh, as a, as a uh, weapon under the uh, uh, Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, um, uh, rather the Chemical Weapons Convention. The, uh, all, all of these things, uh, th these uh, developments that are chipping away at the, uh, the arms control uh, regimes that have been, been put in place are uh, uh, descending on what has been the, uh, the, uh, one of the core foreign policy pursuits of the, the current administration, which is its uh, preference for a nuclear abolition and to seek a, a sequence of arms control agreements that would progressively lead to uh, the abolition of, uh, of nuclear weapons. Uh, th this, uh, uh, the efforts to um, uh, impose this, this policy have produced a, a, a paradoxical outcome. Uh, the, the efforts that, uh, that have been uh, undertaken through uh, the New START Treaty in particular to reduce or eliminate uh, nuclear weapons and, and uh, ex excise their role from uh, uh, international affairs has has in fact uh, created circumstances that w will uh, accelerate the uh, nuclear proliferation problem rather than uh, than mitigate it. The um, uh, perhaps the the, the most uh, uh, compelling dimension of this is is not that uh, proliferation will increase among U.S. adversaries. That that's there's already incentives for that to take place and. We've seen this in North Korea and in Iran, for example, uh, but uh, among uh, nations that are friendly to the U.S. but are uh, uh, in increasingly skeptical of the uh, credibility of the extended deterrent. And uh, the, uh, the New START uh, treaty with its um, uh, aspiration of nuclear abolition, I, I think, is producing this paradoxical result uh, uh, that we are unable to sustain the credibility of the extended deterrent w without uh, uh, any effort to, to effectively modernize our forces. Uh, as, as you um, uh, may be aware, uh, every element of our strategic nuclear forces uh, requires uh, modernization more or less uh, simultaneously. Our nuclear submarine force uh, uh, for d uh, delivering ballistic missiles, our ICBM force, uh, heavy bombers, the uh, air launch cruise missile, and the nuclear command and control system all require uh, modernization. The uh, ballistic missile defense system is, has been built at a, at a small scale and uh, is, is not suitable if the uh, threat is going to uh, increase substantially as, as uh, may be uh, uh, happening as, as uh, Russia becomes increasingly uh, aggressive. So all, all of these things ha have, to, have to be taken more or less simultaneously, uh, a feat that uh, seems uh, very difficult in the current fiscal environment, but nevertheless re reflects this, uh, this underlying paradox of the aspiration for nuclear abolition is in fact uh, producing uh, a much larger, uh, much more dynamic, and, and much more uh, threatening uh, environment for, uh, for nuclear weapons. And uh, uh, I, the, the cumulative effect of all of these uh, uh, developments is, uh, suggests that we need some substantial change in the uh, direction that we've uh, undertaken with respect to our um, uh, deterrent forces. The, the, 
the Congress um, uh, a year ago has uh, created a panel to uh, look into the entire uh, nuclear uh, weapons enterprise to uh, find out uh, what has happened to it in the, in the uh, past couple of decades since the end of the Cold War and, and how we can um, build a more responsive complex that will, in fact, meet the, uh, the needs of uh, our uh, foreign policy going forward. Uh, that panel is, is due to uh, provide its report this fall, so uh, it, uh, that may, may uh, uh, perhaps uh, converge well with the uh, discussion we've been having here on, on uh, nuclear weapons policy and arms control policy and so forth. Though I, I, I think the, um, uh, the U, uh, U.S. policy is beginning to recognize that something is amiss and uh, the uh, reintroduction of, of uh, nuclear weapons as part of uh, uh, the environment in which our foreign policy will be created is, is now upon us, and uh, we, we will need to respond accordingly. So I'll, I'll stop there and, and uh, answer questions. Bill, you've uh, lived up to your reputation as a, uh, one of the intellectual heirs of uh, Herman Kahn, and we, I think all of us can see in your remarks why so many policymakers have uh, relied upon you on, the, on these uh, critical issues. Now a pleasure to turn it over to Roland Freudenstein, who joins us from Brussels this morning. So Bill only came in from New York, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Uh, it's a huge honor to, to be speaking, especially here at the Hudson Institute, and I the geek in me compels me to confess that Herman Kahn was one of the gurus of my teenage years. And you know, I went to the school library, and I think I was the only guy who checked out Herman Kahn books there. Uh, and you know, the doomsday machine and all this was um, hugely fascinating. And then later on, during my political science studies, I did become a bean counter, as we called them in those days, you know, calculating throw weights and talking about ranges and uh, not mine. <laughs> okay. Uh, second, uh, let me just just one clarification on the Wilfrid Martin Center. Um, it's the it's the the think tank, or in, in German terminology, we would say the political foundation of the European People's Party, which is not as North Korean as it sounds. As I <laughs> as I hasten to add for North American audiences, it's uh, very simply the center right uh, in the European Parliament and in a larger sense in the European Union. So it's a political party family of 75 member parties, including observers and associates. Okay, now, having said that, um, let me come back to what Andrei initially said about Putin. I think it's actually unfair to accuse him of having been a KGB, sorry, a KGB agent. Um, it explains a lot in his case, but I would say dig deeper, look harder at his CV. What was he before he joined up? He was a street saga, a hooligan in the best sense, and he's proud of it. He calls it his street university. Masha Gessen in The Man Without a Face describes these years. He was like age 10, 11, 12, 13 in the backyards of suburban Leningrad time. You know, I mean, little extortion things, uh, lots of violence, of course. Uh, uh, you know, and I would say, I mean, there are three things in what is happening now that for which I find the best explanation in that part of Vladimir Putin's CV. First, being a rather 
skinny and not too tall fellow, he had to constantly, literally punch above his weight. Some call that asymmetrical warfare. That's a scientific term for it. But, you know, to be aware that you don't have to be the stronger guy in physical terms. You just need to know where to apply the pressure at the right time. One thing. Second, always leave the other side an option. Like, you know, punch him in the face and then say, well, you go, now you have the choice. Do you want to escalate? you want to be stupid? Or you want to be rational and, you know, sit down and negotiate? Well, or the equivalent in the SAG days of Vladimir Putin. And the third, and that brings me actually to today's main topic, the third is a keen sense, a masterful sense of seeing fear in the eyes of the opponent, spotting fear in the eyes of the opponent. And he's richly rewarded in Germany these days. And when we go back to the... um, uh, to, the, to Andrei's description of uh, Dmitry Kiselyov, p- arguably the most powerful man in Russian media these days, who on Sunday the 2nd of March, that was right after it became clear that this was an occupation in Crimea. So on Sunday uh, evening, uh, 2nd of March, he went on national television and talked about this uh, radioactive dust. Uh, you know, there was a caption in the the background in Cyrillic, radioactivity papillon, to which Russia can reduce the United States. And then there was an animation with uh, silos and missiles coming out of the silos, and there was a mushroom cloud. That was primetime news in Germany the next evening, and it was the number one item uh, in pri- on primetime news on German state television on Monday the 3rd of March. Not enough with... Um, rendering the Kisilyov uh, show, the journalists then went to a senior citizen's home and interviewed people about what it's like to live in war. And sure enough, these ladies and gentlemen said, to the next and the, the, the generation after, don't do it. Anything, but no more war. So, you know, I mean, from the hooligan perspective, I would say scored a point, already achieved a small psychological victory by actually being aggressive and actually threatening more aggression, in this case, the ultimate form. So, uh, you know, the German debate is somewhere between uh, the... No, well, not surrender yet. (laughs) No, no, but the German debate is somewhere between... You know, not even wanting to imagine the, the, the unthinkable. And on the other hand, thinking about nuclear force modernization behind closed doors and, and, and let's please no, have no public debate about it. I mean, that's, that's about it. So let me, let me just give you the, the update on, on nuclear forces in Germany today. You know, there used to be cruise missiles and Pershings and... Um, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, tactical nuclear weapons, artillery, gr- uh, artillery shells and free-fall bombs and standoff missiles, uh, and, and all this, a whole gamut of, of uh, tactical, tactical and intermediate nuclear weapons, all this is gone. 
there are now on the territory of the Federal Republic of Germany 20 freefall bombs uh, of the B61 type, uh, which are aging fast. These are, of course, under American control, they would be, would be carried into uh, action by uh, Tornado uh, fighter bombers, which is a, a plane that was designed in the late 1960s. Uh, uh, but uh, according to the German government, will be operational for this mission because it needs a special variety of the, of the Tornado. Uh, it will be uh, operational for this type of mission until 2024. Now, the B-61s have to be modernized before that. In fact, there is a program uh, put on track in 2012 um, where um, the, 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 the life cycle prolongation or whatever it's called um, has been, has life, been started. Life extension. Uh, a life extension, exactly. Um, and uh, uh, and these, uh, these free-fall bombs will be modernized in due time, and it will be the, the B-61-12 variety. Now, as I said, I mean, all this is, is, is a, a conversation matter for maybe a total of about 100 people in Germany. Uh, and uh, there is no public debate, and the government does not want any public debate about it. Don't forget that a major part of Germany's political culture, you know, with, at its core, the Green Party, has protest against nuclear weapons, and especially against their deployment in Germany at the core of their identity, the peace movement of the 1980s. Uh, I mean, these are, these are, this is now a staple, staple food for, for, for Germany's political culture, and that is why we are not having any public debate about this topic. And, and if it came, it would be extremely uh, conflictuous uh, for, for, for Germans. Um, now, NATO, in the meantime, uh, continues to consider nuclear weapons as part of its uh, arsenal, uh, quite, quite legitimately. Uh, I quote from um, the strategic concept for the defense and security of the members of the North Atlantic Alliance from 2010. As long as there are nuclear weapons in the world, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. There are other countries in Germany that, uh, that have nuclear weapons on their territory, Again, these are only the B-61 freefall bombs, nothing else for the moment. Uh, among them are Italy, uh, Belgium, and I think two or three other uh, NATO member states, uh, which are also not happy with the fact that these nuclear weapons are there. But uh, I think the first consequence of what we've just heard, what is coming from Russia now, is that the whole thing is frozen. Now, what is not being followed up, and maybe that's a good sign. Here's the good news. There was a very publicized initiative of then Foreign Minister, German Foreign Minister Guido Westerwelle in 2009. He actually managed to get it into the coalition agreement with Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats uh, to, uh, to actually make Germany a, a, non-nuclear, um, a non-nuclear country, to get rid of these last 20 freefall bombs um, and uh, thereby uh, render a service to posterity. Uh, Angela Merkel, in her classical style of, you know, how should I call it, passive resistance in some cases, she, she let it be written into the coalition agreement, and then she said, but we can, also, we can only do this uh, in cooperation and in coordination with our NATO allies. So 
nothing happened. Bombs are still there. And, you know, as much as I don't see any debate on nuclear, on, on, on an extension of nuclear deterrence in Germany emerging in the next couple of years, I also don't see uh, any continuation of the effort to get rid of these 20 weapons. They are going to be there, but, you know, to sum, it, to sum a long story up, their presence is quite literally symbolical. It is a psychological, it's, it's, it's a means of deterrence, but, it, it, you know, whether it's, or to what extent this is credible, actually, especially looking at the carrier systems, um, is a different question. Now, one last word uh, about Poland. Uh, you know, the Polish debate is, of course, in view of what happened uh, in Crimea and Ukraine and uh, what is happening in other, uh, in other countries of Eastern Europe, and it is also that one element of uh, the 2009 uh, Zapad uh, ex- military exercise by Russia in Belarus um, now takes on a very ominous, a very ominous uh, character. Uh, you know, if you remember, Zapad in 2009 was uh, the exercise of Poland and Lithuania, don't laugh, Poland and Lithuania attacking Belarus for bad treatment of the Lithuanian minority. Actually, there are people who are saying, and now I'm not kidding, there are people who are saying that what was really exercised there was actually invading another country in order to protect an ethnic minority. So, you know, the thing that if if Zapad 2009 was ostensibly about defending against a ludicrous uh, NATO NATO, uh, uh, attack, it was actually also about exercising such an attack, which then happened uh, exactly five years later, five, four and a half years later in Ukraine. Uh, so, it, but now, now comes the punchline. What did Zapad 2009 end with? The use of tactical nuclear uh, weapon in Warsaw, a nuclear strike against Warsaw. Now, at the time, the Poles laughed it off. Now, they take it much more seriously. And indeed, as Bill just said, there is a budding debate. I mean, it's in its very initial stages about nuclear weapons on Polish territory. And I'm making, I'm formulating it exactly like this. I do not think any serious politician or even expert in Poland says Poland should acquire nuclear weapons. What, they, what some experts have started thinking about, call it have demanded in some cases, is for U.S. nuclear weapons to be deployed in Poland under the assumption that a country in which nuclear weapons are based is safer against conventional attack. Uh, That's the argument. But I tell you, you will not find a single statement of a government politician in Poland uh, that uh, that even takes up this, uh, this argument. Um, this is a debate among some experts. There's a Center for Strategic Studies in Warsaw, which is very small, which, which started thinking about this, and you had immediate reactions from politicians saying that this is not on the table right now. Nevertheless, of course, I mean, if, if, if the Polish reaction about a TV program like Kisilov and uh, Radioaktivny Papiol is quite different from the German reaction. And yes, there is worry, there is uh, fear, but I think... <laughs> you know, anyone counting on um, 
Poland lowering its resolve to, to actually face up to Putin and, and to the new threat from the East, anyone who counts on them lowering that resolve is wrong. And I think uh, we've seen it already in the, I mean, this, the, the, the Poles didn't wait until Crimea to start massively modernizing their military forces, not with a primary goal of overseas use, but with a primary goal of territorial defense. And that actually that program was put on track after 2008 Georgia. As Thomas Ilves, uh, uh, the Estonian president, likes to say, Georgia 2008 was a wake-up call, but we've been, hit, we've been hitting the snooze button ever since. The Poles have not hit the snooze button. They have started, they will in two years' time, will have the largest standing tank force in continental Europe. And that's a consequence of Georgia 2008. And so uh, the same goes for all aspects of, of uh, the military threat up to the nuclear one. And I think in, in, in due time, uh, I can see a more serious and more open debate even about nuclear weapons in Poland. But for the moment, this is not the case. So where does all that leave us? Um, I, I don't dare to make a prediction about the nuclear aspects, but in general, if it comes to uh, reacting to, to the threat from, from Russia, uh, indeed, at, as Ed Lucas likes to say, we're in for a very, very, very long chess game here. And, and we have to see that, uh, you know, as chess is a zero-sum game, so is, so is largely uh, our confrontation with uh, this new Russia, which is new in many aspects. And uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to confront Putin's Russia. We'll have to strengthen the Union, and I mean the European Union, and we have to rebuild the Atlantic Alliance. Nothing short of that. Thank you. Well, and let me uh, thank you. Uh, the third of three spectacular uh, presentations this morning. It's, uh, the, I will now turn it over for questions from the audience. Let me make a distinction between uh, questions and comments. And so if you can keep your uh, questions brief and uh, direct them to uh, one or more of the presenters, that would be appreciated. If we have time at the end of the question round, we will then open it up for comments. Uh, so thank you very much. That, and please identify yourself and your, offer your institution. John Quinstadter, Radzima Photo. I'd like to return to something that uh, Mr. Piontkowski said about using um, the fullest measure of economic and political actions against uh, what Putin is doing. Um, leaving aside what Andrei Ilarionov and others have said, that the only way to push uh, Russia out of Ukraine is through military force, and leaving aside the question of whether one could find any leader in, uh, in Washington or in Europe willing to use the full measure of economic and political uh, measures against Putin. Can you see anyone in the West ready to accept what, what the consequence of the full measure of economic and political measures will be, which will be the breakup of the, of the Russian Empire? Thank you. There is not an issue of breaking up Russian Empire now. There is an issue of uh, stopping uh, this Putin's crazy and uh, very dangerous idea of Ruskimir uh, in uh, Ukraine. And uh, what uh, Roland uh, has said, only confirm and believe that uh, uh, nobody in Europe is ready to die uh, uh, for for Narva, and if uh, Putin succeed in Ukraine, 
the hooligan will certainly go go to boats. Uh, not because he needs Narva. He needs to humiliate and uh, uh, dismantle NATO. So what is going on now in Ukraine decides the future of European and uh, global security. And uh, I agree with you that uh, no, uh, no Western uh, uh, power is ready to, um, uh, to intervene military. It's for the first second of the conflict, both President Obama and uh, uh, NATO Secretary Rasmussen categorically stated that uh, uh, the military involvement uh, will not be even discussed because they say Ukraine is not a, a member uh, of NATO. But I believe that uh, uh, Putin's, uh, uh, Putin's project in Ukraine uh, can, be, can be stopped uh, by three factors. First, Ukrainian resistance. Second, the growing, growing anti-war movement in Russia. Uh, on uh, Sunday 21st, um, on Sunday uh, 21st, uh, uh, the opponents of Putin and his policy in Ukraine assembled 50,000 uh, Moscovite uh, for March of protest. And the administration tried in a week uh, to uh, demonstrate uh, their support and they they try to assemble a comparable march uh, using uh, uh, buses uh, to bring students and workers, paying some fee for participation. But it was a catastrophic uh, failure. They, uh, their number was at best, at best on their own accounts, uh, uh, 15,000. So we, opponents of war, not marginals. We are, minor, we are majority in active uh, minority. Well, mo most people always uh, uh, either indifferent or not active enough. The history is made by active minority. And the events in Moscow this month demonstrated the active minority of, uh, uh, of opponents of war is larger than active minority uh, of, uh, in spite of all Kisilov of the world. It's and the third factor, it's uh, economic uh, sanction and, uh, and uh, political isolation of uh, Putin uh, and uh, his entourage uh, by the West. And uh, I think that um, one, one action will be very efficient. Uh, everybody knows that uh, Putin and uh, uh, his people, people around him are multi-billionaires multi with their uh, assets in the West, and your financial intelligence knows very well these assets. And uh, freezing and exposing, publicly exposing uh, uh, these assets uh, would be a very good uh, measure for affecting Russian public opinion. What, what uh, Russian people know uh, who are these gentlemen who promote uh, the great idea of uh, so-called uh, uh, Ruskimir? I think that combination of these three, three factors is able uh, to defeat, uh, uh, to, to inflict defeat uh, on Putin in this uh, hybrid war in Ukraine.
Hi, my name is Chuck Manto. I have a small um, critical infrastructure company here in the U.S., and I'm active in an FBI-sponsored program called InfraGuard. I have um, uh, sort of a two-part, an internal, external question about Ukraine. Um, since the historically divided Ukrainian churches appear after the fall of Crimea to, for the first time, become more united, um, do they force, uh, do they uh, comprise some kind of a a force to challenge the myth of uh, the Russian world from an internal perspective? And would their brethren in Russia uh, take to heart their concerns? That's an internal question. And then secondly, uh, would uh, Europe just say, for the sake of peace, let's just, uh, we don't really care all that much about Ukraine. It's been sort of Russian. They sort of talk the same language. And uh, would they just use that as a, a peace offering, so you can have it as long as you leave the rest of us alone? Or would they really see that as one more move towards the uh, threat towards Europe as a whole, even without any U.S. participation at all, uh, to sort of back them up? Well, sure, yeah, uh, okay, i start with the second part. Um, that's the billion-dollar question that you asked. <laughs> I wish I had an answer to this, but it, uh, that's what institutions like mine are now fighting for, is to, to, to say, look, what's happening in Ukraine is a direct threat to us, to our core values, and in fact, even to the European Union as an organization. Because if Putin has his way, um, both NATO and the EU will lose their current meaning as organizations providing stability, security for their own members, right? Not to, not even, not to mention the external function of, you know, uh, extending stability in the case of the EU with neighborhood policy, the Eastern Partnership and all that. So, you know, we're actually, we're, we are fighting for the European Union itself here. And so aside from that, um, Putin has become ha, has begun uh, pushing out all Western influence from 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 what he what he defends what used to be called the near abroad and and is now now Ruskimir and and uh, I think for the sake of our core core values and and the right of nations to determine their own future both in terms of their internal structures uh, rule of law democracy, but also in terms of their allegiances, their alliances, uh, we have to take up the struggle, and it will be a very, very long one. But that's not the only opinion in, in the European Union. And of course, there are people who are saying, what do we care? You know, this is, uh, I mean, some very prominent former chancellors of the Federal Republic and foreign ministers and so on are openly saying that, hey, you know, we stepped over their red line. Russian, we stepped over Russia's red line by NATO enlargement, by um, missile defense, and last but by no means least, by uh, you know somehow making the Ukrainians sign an association agreement with the European Union. Mm -hmm. So we got into their backyard, and now we are paying, and the poor Ukrainians are paying the price for our stupidity. I'm paraphrasing, okay? But this argument is around, and we have to take it seriously. And the, the, the debate is not over. We're just beginning, and it will be a long, hard struggle within the West and within Europe. Now, without the U.S., 
no way. Um, you know, I, I, I do hope that this whole contingency that we're in is the end of the pivot, or, or later it was called rebalancing. I mean, I mean, even if you wanted to continue the pivot to Asia, you, a pivot takes an anchor, as Wes Mitchell from SIPA uh, always, always says here in Washington. You know, if you want to turn, you've got to have a, a, a stable point around which you turn. That stable point should be uh, the, the, the democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, the jury is out on whether Europe will see things that way, but, uh, but the, the, the Martin Center is one of the institutions that are fighting hard to, to, to get this point across. Well, not only unity of uh, Ukrainian churches, uh, but the unity of uh, civil society in Ukraine as a whole impressed uh, uh, Russian thinking uh, very, 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 very strongly. Uh, what is most important is that uh, Putin administration nice. failed to present this uh, events in Ukraine as an ethnic war between Russian and Ukrainians. Because uh, everybody said that uh, a lot uh, of people uh, uh, who are fighting uh, on, on Kyiv side, uh, not only Russian, Russian speakers, all of them are Russian speakers, they are uh, ethnic uh, Russians. So this main uh, Putin mythology on Ukrainian events uh, presented it as uh, mm, rebellion uh, of uh, Russian ethnic who were persecuted and so on. This, uh, this mythology was completely uh, collapsed and uh, it uh, has changing, changing uh, uh, mood uh, in the country. I already uh, mentioned uh, this uh, uh, testing uh, of two matches in Moscow, and I think this testing is more indicative that uh, also called uh, opinion polls. Uh, this, the fact that we are, uh, we are many, and uh, we are, uh, was uh, quite, uh, quite a surprise. Uh, for us, because uh, uh, every day from TV we heard that 84 percent, 84 percent of people supporting uh, uh, Putin policy. Well, uh, 90 uh, rating of President Ceausescu was uh, 97 uh, two days before he and his wife were shot as dogs on the street of Bucharest. So the real testing is a comparison of number of uh, citizens who are uh, ready to express uh, uh, their position actively. Question in the back, sir. Yeah, yeah, never. Uh, Mitchell Pullman. Uh, in Soviet times, the defense sector, well, the entire Soviet economy was autarkic, including the defense sector. Uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia's developed economic ties with the West. Uh, things have changed. Much of the Russian, what was a Soviet defense industry, is now in Ukraine. So, given all of that, um, what effect are sanctions, uh, both those imposed by the West as well as self-imposed by Russia, how realistic would it really be for? Russia to rearm, given that so much of their technology in recent years has come from the West, uh, and so much of what 
you know, used to be their defense sector is now located elsewhere. Yeah. Bill, Bill, do you want to? Yeah, uh, yes, uh, uh, a few points. Uh, first, uh, they, they, uh, Russians have been moving a lot of the uh, industrial, uh, defense industrial capability that they um, had previously depended on out of Ukraine into, uh, into Russia. For example, the, the uh, large um, uh, SS-18 type uh, uh, storable liquid uh, ballistic missiles that used to be uh, assembled in Ukraine are now going to be uh, the n the new v variant is going to be built in in Russia. But there still are uh, quite a few uh, limitations, and and Russia is, uh, from what's evident in the in the Russian press, are scrambling to uh, to try and um, uh, restore all of that capability to uh, 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 to the Russian territory. But I think with respect to uh, uh, nuclear weapons, they are probably and, and, and nuclear and delivery systems, they are probably less dependent on um, sites outside of Russia than is the case with uh, other parts of their uh, defense establishment, which were uh, more widely distributed and included sites in uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and, and even in the Baltic states. Greg Thielman, Arms Control Association. I wonder if the panel could speculate on what Putin's motives would be for uh, crossing a line on the INF Treaty. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering if it could be, in fact, that he's trying to provoke the U.S. to withdraw from the treaty. There are two assumptions behind my question. One is that it's not the Rubej new ICBM that we're complaining about, because, in fact, that would be counted. Every one of those warheads would be counted under the New START Treaty. For every one of those warheads, the, the Russians would have to not have one of their other ICBM warheads that could attack the U.S. We're worried about the, the new cruise missile there. And we assume that with the hundreds of delivery vehicles and thousands of nuclear weapons, there is no target that I a new cruise missile could, could attack with a nuclear weapon that can't be attacked with the existing arsenal. So what was Putin doing? Well, uh, uh, I'm sure there's there's quite a few um, uh, uh, opportunities that might explain it, but it, at least th things that have have been explained in in the uh, in the Russian uh, news media is that uh, the Russians uh, have have said that they have uh, target sets that uh, uh, for which intermediate range systems would be required. The U.S. does not. Uh, they have uh, been for several years uncomfortable with the uh, constraints imposed by the uh, by the INF uh, uh, agreement. Uh, the uh, also in the since the end of the uh, uh, of the Cold War, the the Russians have had an aggressive uh, program of modernizing their th uh, theater nuclear weapon designs. They uh, have. Uh, uh, moved out of the um, uh, very uh, relatively high-yield theater systems to ones that are more appropriate to uh, highly accurate uh, delivery systems. So I, I think we are seeing a modernization of, of the theater weapons, and as uh, was mentioned uh, uh, about so, uh, Russian exercises, they are actively including uh, 
the use of theater weapons in their uh, exercises. Uh, in addition to the Zapad uh, uh, 2009 exercise, the, the current uh, Vostok 2014 exercise in the Russian Far East also includes uh, 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 playing the use of uh, nuclear weapons in, in the field. So I, I think uh, uh, the, for the Russians, the INF uh, treaty is... Uh, a, a limitation that actually uh, constrains them, uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, I suspect their complaint is um, uh, about the U.S. violations as being um, parallel to to this one. Suggests that uh, uh, the, the the Russians are anxious to get out of the INF treaty for their own reasons. I think that uh, shortest answer to the question about. Uh, desire of uh, Russia to leave uh, intermediate missile treaty is China. We go over here. This one. The, the fellow behind you. Why, why don't we do this? Why don't we take three questions in a row and then, because we have to wrap up in the next, so why don't we go there, there, and then, uh, yeah, why don't we do this row? Three questions in a row, and then we'll we'll wrap things up since we need to wrap up by 10:30. Thank you. I am Saleh Khatran, King Saud University. I have two qu quick questions. First, to the, all the panelists. Uh, well, I don't How do you see? No, I can't, we can't hear you. I'm sorry. Is it Mike, Mike, please. Yes. Mike. My name is Saleh Khatran. I come from Saudi Arabia, King Saud University. Two quick questions. First, to the, all the panelists. How do you see this new uh, Russian nuclear policy affecting uh, Russian position uh, towards the negotiation? With Iran, does uh, do you see uh, Russia uh, serious about uh, uh, preventing Iran from uh, nuclear from acquiring nuclear uh, weapon? That's first question. Second question to Professor Andre on this concept of Rus uh, Kimir. Do you see any role for the Russian uh, Church? Is there any cooperation between the Church and the Kremlin in per pursuing this uh, policy of Rus uh, Kimir? Thank you. That's yeah. Thank you. Uh, two questions. Uh, one is to Bill uh, and Roland. Um, having in mind the words of uh, Mr. Obama, who said um, Russia has legitimate interests in Ukraine, and words of Angela Merkel, uh, Ukraine is free uh, to do what they like, but not to harm Russia. Uh, having in mind these statements and the decisions of, or non-decisions of Wales Summit, uh, should we ex understand that it is a tacit approval and acceptance of the spheres of interests uh, for Russia, spheres of privileged interest that Mr. Medvedev and Putin proclaimed, and Ukraine is part of this uh, sphere of privileged interests. And the question to Roland, uh, based on your elegant description of psychological portrait of the main hero, um, would you say that economic sanctions to remote friends of this hooligan would help to stop his bullying behavior. And the last question over uh, there. Yeah. Peter Volkovitsky, uh, uh, retired government employee. I have a question to Andre. You mentioned that uh, Putin was always against the Western uh, way for Ukraine. If we imagine for a moment that this plan would realize and Ukraine would get some support in the form uh, analog to the Marshall Plan for Germany, we could come to the situation in 50s when there were two Germanys, East and West, and there was a big flow of active people from uh, East Germany to West Germany. Do you think that this menace was considered Putin seriously in his policy? Okay. 
Why don't we begin with the Iran question and then, yeah. Uh, concerning Iran, it, uh, the uh, Russian interest is, is, uh, seems to be served by uh, not having a success in the uh, current uh, uh, round of negotiations. It, it keeps the United States uh, busy in trying to, uh, to manage. Uh, the uh, the crisis it, it provides an important uh, uh, source of influence into uh, the um, uh, let's say the the Persian element of uh, uh, of the Middle East, which uh, of course is coupled to the uh, through the Shia um, uh, regimes in uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, and southern Lebanon to uh, to give them a grip on um, the the uh, Levant or from the Levant to the Gulf so I I think uh, Russian interests have evolved as relations with the US have deteriorated and uh, uh, I I think they are not going to be helpful in securing an agreement with Iran uh, okay just the this this point will will sanctions stop him um, I don't think it's a question of stopping him or making him turn around tomorrow, um, even, even when his friends start prodding him. But you know, my, my guess, and Andre knows much more about this, is that uh, indeed uh, power is um, pretty much concentrated in, in the hands of Putin. And uh, you know, whether this or that friend uh, calls him up at night and says, uh, you know, um, my wife has given me a hard time because she can't go shopping on the Champs-Élysées anymore or we can't... Uh, uh, you know, spend our, our, our vacations on our villa in Cyprus. I mean, I, I really think this is not going to have an immediate effect. But, you know, in the good old hooligan uh, situation, it, it's not important black or white, yes or no. It's important to increase the cost of certain things. And we have seen over the past couple of months that Putin does take into account the cost of his actions. And he does try to stay below a certain level, which he defines as the West's red line, and he certainly tries to stay below that um, because he doesn't, you know, he, because he's not happy about the sanctions and, and, and he doesn't want more of that. And this is something that we should use much more to, to our advantage or to the advantage of the, the values we believe in and, and the Ukrainians for whom we want to do something here. Um, and and uh, and that just brings me to this this other point about spheres of interest. You know, that's the problem I have with the term geopolitics, which has been really overused uh, in the last six months. I believe. You know, if geopolitics, in the good old Napoleonic sense, means la géographie, c'est le destin des peuples. You know, geography means that you know nations can't evade their geographical location. If that is geopolitics, I'm. <laughs> I'm against it, and I think it's totally opposed to what we stand for. Um, so spheres of interest um, it, it cannot get in the way of the ability of nations to define their own system and their own alliances. Uh, you know, if that's geopolitics, I'm, I'm, I'm against geopolitics. Uh, but, but, I mean, you know, to take geography, culture, history, and all that into account when we do something or plan something – I mean that's that would for me would be the positive side of of of, of geopolitics as a as a as a as a strategy element, but but uh, I don't you know it's true Merkel Merkel does a lot of things and says a lot of things these days because she has to keep the coalition peace at home, and she has a coalition partner who is just barely getting rid of their total illusions about the strategic partnership with Russia, 
you know, and they're, they're really coming out of, uh, out of a long uh, dream there, and it's very painful. And she's not the type to pick a fight with her, with her social democratic coalition partner. I think she herself has a very, very solid instinct about, uh, about Mr. Putin and, and about Russia at the moment. But, uh, you know, she has to prevaricate, and she has to be careful sometimes. Uh, but having said that, I, I, I reject this, the tone of the statement that you, Ukraine shouldn't do anything to harm Russia. I mean, it's, uh, I think, uh, I think it, it depends on where and when you say it, but, but, but she shouldn't have said that. Okay. Andre, for the last word. Uh, well, church, yes, uh, Russian Orthodox uh, Church uh, participating uh, in this, uh, in this uh, project of uh, Ruski Mir and uh, and um, uh, one of the uh, ideological ideological supporters uh, of this um, of this agenda uh, about sanctions well the sanctions uh, affecting not only hooligan psyche they are affecting uh, psyche of many uh, other people uh, people around him who um, are asking uh, the question why we should uh, lose billions of dollars, as they already lose billions in capitalization uh, of their uh, assets. And what's more important, uh, Andre, and you as one of our brilliant economists know it's better than anybody else, that uh, they affect Putinomics, and Putinomics uh, uh, is doomed. It's not uh, because it's not uh, a market economy. Uh, the fundamental uh, element of private uh, property is absent. Property of uh, any ordinary person, oligarch, is uh, uh, conditional. It depends on uh, its administrative resource, of its relation with president or local policeman. And latest example with Mr. Yevtushenko uh, demonstrated one again. And I think that uh, without any sanction, this uh, uh, Putinomics will collapse uh, in matter of years at longest. But sanctions, uh, they accelerate this uh, project, uh, process, no, no, no doubt about it. And that's why I think uh, uh, they're very important. Well, that's the most optimistic note we've heard this morning. <laughs> I want to thank everyone. It's been an absolutely excellent uh, panel and lots of uh, very important questions uh, raised. And uh, this, uh, is, uh, these questions are something we're going to continue to look at here at Hudson through uh, Bill Schneider's work on the second nuclear age uh, and through Andre's uh, important work, and we look forward to having uh, Holon back with us uh, before terribly long. Thank you for uh, coming, and I also want to thank the uh, Hudson Public Affairs team for doing such a great job pulling this event together. Thank you.